welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. All right, this is the last week of the pre-recorded plenary sessions. I'll be back next week live in the studio. So much could have happened while I'm gone, I have no clue. But here I am in Australia, and I will be heading back to the US of A. So stay tuned for next week's plenary session where I hit on all those topics. And this week, you're still in for a treat. We've got a few questions we've been saving up for you. You won't want to miss this. Stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Sven Olsen for Question of the Week, Hematology-Oncology Boards Edition. Sven, it's great to see you again in the studio. I'm really happy this time because we're back to classical hematology, my preferred field. The, 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 the most noble pursuit in the hospital. Correct. The pursuit of classical hematology. It's a, it's a, great, it's a great field. You know, I was pleased uh, yesterday we had our first round of applicants for our fellowship program mm-hmm. here at mm-hmm. OHSU, and uh, our program director had made a little PowerPoint uh, to introduce the applicants, and he noted our strength in classical hematology. He wrote that on his PowerPoint. I smiled, and I spoke up during our little intro session to let all the applicants know that I was happy about that. So even a sinner like Dr. Jeremy Setnar can <laughs> find God and realize that it's not benign, but classical hematology. Correct. And then I proceeded the rest of the day to keep calling it benign hematology, and I completely uh, undermined, yep. undermined that cause. <laughs> yeah, I, I noticed that. But I, I, no, I do notice something interesting about these questions of the week, which was the last time we met, Sven, which was a week ago. It was the day after the first time we had applicants. And then now, yet a week later, we still are yet a day after the first time we had applicants. You're right. That's, uh, man, I that's kind the, of that's cats the co- out of the bag. That's word. the coffee cup on the table in Game of Thrones. You know, that's that Starbucks cup. That's a great cup. example. Yeah, you're that's right. That's the Starbucks cup that Daenerys has got on the table. Wow. You're so uh, up to date on current events. Well, you know, I love GOT. Popular culture. Wow. Did yeah. you like the last season? Oh, boy. It's the most controversial question on plenary session. Okay. Let's just move on right now because I don't want to even talk about that. I'll answer it. I'll answer it. I'll tell you what. All, there are a lot of people out there who hate the sh- who hated how it ended. And I guess I will give a little bit of credit to the people who felt that the ending was a bit abrupt. But when you have a show that's been going on for this many seasons and, you know, is so beloved, no one's going to like the ending. No one's going to like the fact it's ending. And the thing about endings is one of the things that made the show good was it kept branching out and made a bigger sort of universe of characters. And at some point, you got to prune it. So I would say here on Plenary Session for the very first time, the admission that I was satisfied with the ending of that show and I was happy with it. Interesting. Okay. All right. So what's this week's question of the week? Okay. We have a 77-year-old man with a history of chronic AFib, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia. He comes in for a preoperative consultation before undergoing an elective open shoulder surgery to repair a torn labrum. 
He has remained active despite his condition. He has no history of embolic stroke. His medications include warfarin, valzartan, chlorothaladone, and ortorvastatin. His orthopedic surgeon is requesting a perioperative plan for the management of his anticoagulation. His most recent INR is 2.7. So the question is, how is his anticoagulation best managed perioperatively? A, hold his warfarin for three days prior to surgery, admit him, and bridge with IV unfractionated heparin, stopping six hours prior to the operation. B, hold warfarin three days prior to surgery with no bridging. C, hold warfarin five days prior to surgery and bridge with low molecular weight heparin with last dose the day prior to operation. D, hold warfarin five days prior to surgery and bridge with low molecular weight heparin, but this time at therapeutic dose. I should say the last answer choice was prophylactic dose. Mm, this is good. therapeutic dose mm -hmm. with last dose day prior to operation. Or E, hold warfarin five days prior to surgery with no bridging. That's a lot of wordy. This is a great question. Yeah. So I can tell that this week, inspired by the Hematology Oncology Boards, is inspired by the Hematology Oncology Boards circa 2008. Because we were <laughs> in a Coumadin era, my friend. And these days there wouldn't be too many people out there that the drug reps, I mean, the, that the evidence has not led to change uh, towards DOAX, wouldn't you say? There are still plenty of situations where we find people on warfarin, and this is true in the when I'm in the benign heme clinic, classical heme clinic. <laughs> My God, I did it again. Yep, yep. So, but, um, you know, we see people on warfarin for lots of reasons. In this uh, case... Uh, ball valve aortic valves? Yeah, I mean, I don't you see that it. very often, but, you know, anyone with a... Well, any any mechanical valve, yep, honestly, yep. should be on warfarin. Anyone yep. who's really obese, we still have a threshold for saying it's probably not safe to be on a DOAC. What's the cutoff there? Well, the trials omitted any patient with a BMI, 50? I believe, over... No, no, no. 50 was now just kind of being pushed. The boundary's being pushed to 50 now. I believe oh. it was 35, actually. 35? Mm -hmm. well, that's a that's a lot of people. Yeah, or, uh, you know, a absolute weight of 120 kilos was kind of the cutoff. I see. But now, I mean, even this last, uh, I believe at ISTH, uh, there was people that were people that were up to 200 and some kilos that were being evaluated in some... Uh, um, small cohort studies, and they were safe too. So, but still, people who are obese still technically the FDA label would say you should use warfarin, something else. Okay. Um, and then people that are have triple positive antiphospholipid syndrome should still probably be on warfarin. Randomized trial showed it's more effective than rivaroxaban. Well, triple positive antiphospholipid syndrome—that's that's true. Yeah. And you know, honestly, we see people that have been on warfarin for many, many, many years, and they've been completely fine on it, and. It's kind of hard not to just not rock the boat and let yeah. them stay on that. So we still see it. I agree with you, of course. I think that warfarin still is a perfectly fine medication. still has a role. So let's get at what this question is getting at. So you've got a 77-year-old gentleman with chronic atrial fibrillation, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, going to undergo an open shoulder surgery to repair a torn labrum. So presumably this gentleman has a bit of shoulder discomfort from that torn labrum. And I'm sure that's a surgery that has been compared against a sham intervention of sham uh, repair of a torn labrum. And I'm sure it has a improvement in subjective outcomes beyond sham surgery. But that's the beyond the scope of this That's beyond podcast. the scope of the question. Let's not get into that. <laughs> let, let dare, let's dare not ask the tough questions of the surgical colleagues. That can be a question that you can ask Dr. Derek Tao to bring to you. I'm sure that's on his mix app. <laughs> well, I know for a fact that I know, I know the literature on, on, on sham uh, shoulder surgeries. And there's a recent study a few years ago on The Lancet. But let's not get into that. Okay, so let's talk about this patient. So a 77-year-old gentleman, chronic AFib. One of the things you want to know is what this person Chad's 2 VASC score is, which is sort of a good way in which you can benchmark their annual rate of um, 
of thromboembolism were they not to be anticoagulated. And I guess here you get two points by being over the age of 75. You get one point for hypertension. And I think those are all the points this gentleman gets. He gets about three points on Chad's Duvask. Is that right? That sounds right. Yep. Um, he's had no history of embolic stroke. That's good because that earns you a bunch of points. Um, the other thing that we need to put in context is, and, you know, it's been a while since I consulted the table, so you tell me if I'm wrong here. But if you take somebody with a CHADS 2 VASC of something like 3-ish, you're talking about a one-year risk of, of stroke on the order of something like 6 to 8%. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, a, a nice kind of rule of thumb I heard once in medical school, actually, was you take that CHAD score, when it was just CHADS 2, not yes. CHADS 2 VASC, and you kind of double it. Double and that's it, yeah. a rough estimate. Now, with CHADS 2 VASC, it's a little different. But, you know, they separate. There's tables that are out there that stratify and, and give your your annual thromboembolic risk. And if you're a CHADS 2 VASC of, you know, 7 or 8, your risk is about 10% a year or higher. Mm-hmm. And if you're somewhere below 4, a CHADS 2 VASC of 4, then you're somewhere less than 5% a year. I see. And I think that that's good to know because what you have to do is take that risk and spread it out over 365 days. Right. And so you start dividing that risk by 365 days, the per day risk of being unanticoagulated is actually not so high. It's actually, um, you know, it's a risk we kind of, it's the, it's the risks of, it's the risks of life. I mean, it's not a super great risk. <laughs> the risks of life. The risks of life. I, stroke. Ro- I rode my bike to work today. We all take risks, Finn. You could have had a stroke on your bike. I could have, and I could have, um, I could have encountered you in your automobile, so I'm glad I didn't. So back to this question. So I think that that kind of mental calculation is helping you come to the conclusion that this is somebody who doesn't need any bridging at all. Um, this is somebody who that risk is not going to be so great if they were just to hold anticoagulation for this for this preoperative and then into the postoperative period. And then I guess the only question remaining is how many days do you need to get that INR 2.7 to drift down enough, um, you know, that you are happy uh, enough to get this person to do, no, the correction, that the orthopedic surgeon is happy enough to take this person to the OR with. And I guess I'd say with 2.7, uh, with a half-life of Coumadin the way it is, I'd say you probably want to give it the whole five days. Correct. So the answer is E. You hold it for five days, hold warfarin prior to surgery, and then do not do not bridge them. Um, and you know, the general consensus now is bridging is kind of going out of vogue. Um, there's very, very few instances where we have to bridge, especially, as you said, because a lot of people are on DOAX and the half-life of DOAX being as short as they are, you often can just hold them and then go right up until surgery and no bridging is ever necessary. But with warfarin, we still have to think about it occasionally. There is a randomized trial that uh, actually looked at this exact question. Yeah, I was about to say. I didn't want to say it because I didn't want to look stupid, but I it's, thought there was. Yeah, the, the appropriately named Bridge Trial. Bridge. Is it Annals of Internal Medicine? New no. England Journal, 2015. Really? By oh, Duquetis et al. Um, he's a big name in kind of bridging uh, bridging therapy studies. But he's a big name was, in bridging. Is that right? Yes, he is indeed. There are actually that. big names in, in classical hematology, believe it or not. Uh, this was 1,800 patients with AFib, and importantly, their mean CHADS-2 scores, this was CHADS-2, not CHADS-2-VASC, they're mm. still using the CHADS-2 score, their mean score was 2.3, that's important, and they were undergoing surgeries, and this is also important, about 90% of those surgeries were what we think of as low risk, low mm. bleeding risk. Mm-hmm. So basically high risk surgeries are anything you kind of intuitively think would be high risk, cardiothoracic, major orthopedic neuraxial surgery. So low risk leaves things like dental extractions, skin biopsies, um, colonoscopies with, you know, either no or minimal uh, endoscopic biopsies, things like that. I see. 
This was an RCT, a non-inferiority trial, and they bridged them. My they randomized time. them to bridge with Deltaparin or placebo okay. from three days prior okay. to about five to ten days after procedure. Okay. Everyone resumed warfarin within 24 hours of the procedure. Okay. And then they followed them for 30-day outcomes of thromboembolic incidents and bleeding outcomes. And what was the size of the non-inferiority margin? Mm, I don't remember. Was it... 1,000 <laughs> <laughs> percent? Okay, well, fair enough, fair enough. To cut a long story short, yeah. the uh, thrombosis rate was essentially the same. It was 0.4 versus 0.3 nice. percent. The nice. major bleeding rate was 1.3 in the no bridging okay. versus 3.2 Whoa. in the bridging. So Whoa. you could argue a triple, I see. triple the rate. So no reduction in thrombotic risk and mm -hmm. more bleeding. And the criticisms of this trial are that they're mostly low-risk surgeries. And the mostly Chad's two scores were kind of at the lower end of the range, about 2.3 mean. So you can't really conclude in higher Chad's scores, but you know we know uh, basically from expert consensus, I have to say, and some uh, non-randomized observational trials that uh, in people with really high Chad scores, people with recent strokes less than three months ago, or you know acute limb ischemia, something like that we do tend to still bridge those people, and that's mm -hmm. what is recommended by the ACC and by CHEST and other guidelines, so. it's great, those are, the, those are the, the Lord's truth, those guidelines, they are. The Lord's truth indeed. The Lord's truth, the way I see, I love them, I love their, their filter guidelines too, those are really just <laughs> so, so good. So, well, so, so good. To be fair, they do say most of the time, don't use a filter. That is pretty consistent. Guidelines are for the guidance of wise men and the obedience of fools, Dr. Olson. So that's a little <laughs> that's a little pro for you. Well, Dr. Olson, this was a pleasure. It's a great question. I think it's just a classical question in classical hematology. Um, and uh, I, I think there's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Uh, you want to hold anticoagulation. You don't need bridging. You don't need to sweat it too much. Uh, and uh, you, I'm still waiting for that uh, sham-controlled torn labrum study. I, I, look for that, I look for that in the literature. Well, thank you for coming on Plenary Session. My pleasure. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ with Ian Straley for Question of the Week, inspired by U.S. Only Step 2 CK. Ian, it's great to have you. Good to be back for another Step 2 style question. Have you taken the test yet? Still haven't taken the test. You're going you're gonna to do well. I think, you know, we'll see. I'm hoping so. We'll see. That's the goal. What's the maximum score on this test? Um, I think, I don't actually know what the upper limit is, but I hear like... 270 and above is super good super good yeah yeah it, they, in general it's like you whatever score you got on step one you should roughly expect to get 10 points higher on step two so the like the that mean didn't, and that the didn't happen for me the so mean is supposedly 10 I'm, higher i yeah. see i'm angry about this then okay <laughs> yeah so well, that hurts ian that that's some that's some tough news <laughs> to take right now i think Whew. I think you can look back on it and warn be me peace. next time you deliver bad news. Ian. <laughs> All right. Well, I should have followed the spikes format, right? <laughs> yeah. Situation, perception, information, yeah, knowledge. You, yeah. You just, you just blurted it out. Yeah. Well, okay. So what's the question this week? Okay. So this week we're going to, um, dive into a little bit. Well, I don't want to give it away. So okay. I'll, oh yeah. Okay. I'll, don't I'll just, give it away. Don't I'll give read, away. Just start reading. Previously healthy. 50-year-old man comes to the physician because of a five-month history of progressively worsening substernal chest pain after meals. Catham! Catham right now! Catham! <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I thought we were in cardiology. I thought we were in cardiology. <laughs> after meals. After meals. After meals. Oh, shoot. Well, you never know. Catham anyway. Yeah, okay. you, just to be safe. Just to be safe. I agree. 
Uh, the pain occurs almost daily. It's worse after eating spicy food or drinking coffee. Mm. Often wakes him up at night. I see. Hasn't had any weight loss. Um, has smoked one pack of cigarettes daily for 35 years, and he drinks one or two glasses of wine every day with dinner. Physical exam is unremarkable. An EGD shows erythema of the distal esophagus with two small mucosal erosions. Biopsy specimens show no evidence of metaplasia. Hmm. Without treatment, this patient is at greatest risk for which of the following complications? Option A, esophageal squamous cell carcinoma. Option B, esophageal adenocarcinoma. Option C, laryngeal carcinoma. Option D, esophageal stricture. Or option E, sliding hiatal hernia. Hmm. Oh, boy. Okay. The plot thickens. Um, so I guess cap wasn't the answer. <laughs> <laughs> not, not quite, but not quite. <laughs> it was a good guess. I see. Well, okay. So is, is a 55-year-old guy coming in with worsening pain after meals, wakes him up at night, it's worse after spicy food or drinking coffee, it's probably worse after drinking alcohol. I mean, it just sounds a whole heck of a lot like GERD. GERD. Gastroesophageal reflux disease. Um, but you're tossed out two interesting things about this this gentleman. One, that this is somebody with a 35-pack year smoking history, mm-hmm. and this is somebody with a 14 drink, or something like that, seven to 14 drink a week alcohol use uh, history. Yeah. Um, and okay, yeah. and on uh, EGD, we see two small erosions of the mucosa mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with erythema of the distal esophagus. I see. Okay, so erosions of the distal esophagus. But what was not shown was intestinal metaplasia. Correct. No metaplasia. Yeah, so this person does not actually carry a diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus. Right. Because the hallmark of that is intestinal metaplasia, and this person does not yet have that. Okay. I guess I'd say that, you know, all of the answer choices here are things that one should consider in one's mind. Uh, Esophageal squamous cell carcinoma, of course, alcohol use and smoking are risk factors for that, and he's at risk for that. Mm -hmm. Um, Laryngeal cancer, I think, of course, smoking um, has a field-wide carcinogenesis effect, and so he's at risk for that. Uh, Esophageal adenocarcinoma, I think, interestingly, if you have a diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus, um, there was a really nice paper in the New England Journal of Medicine a few years ago that looked at, I think the outcomes were Denmark or Sweden. I'm going to pause and actually check that. Which okay. country? Denmark. I found the paper. The paper is Frederick Vidjensen and colleagues. Incidence of adenocarcinoma among patients with Barrett's esophagus. And I think this reason this paper kind of stuck in my mind is that we're always taught that Barrett's, with this, which this patient does not have, because your patient doesn't even have intestinal metaplasia, but let's right. say he did have Barrett's. If he did have Barrett's, the rate of progression to full-blown adenocarcinoma is something we're taught to be quite vigilant for. Yeah. We uh, are stressed to be vigilant for, but this paper finds it has a lower incidence than you would think. After it, it's basically... 2.9 cases per 1,000 person years of follow-up. And if you exclude cases wow. of cancer presenting in the first year, it's 1.2 cases per 1,000 person years with an annual risk of 0.12%. So about one-tenth of 1% annual risk of Barrett's becoming an adenocarcinoma. Wow, that's really low. It's super low. And your patient that you've told me about in your prompt does not even have Barrett's. Doesn't even have Barrett's. Right, so I think that that's going to drop the probability of this. I think what they're trying to do is trick you to get you worried about it. 
uh, because they've been fear-mongering a lot in their classes. Mm -hmm. But the answer is that's actually probably the least probable thing. And the other answers you had, you had that hiatal hernia. I guess I would say that that's not the answer for two reasons. One, that it's a little bit of uh, the cart before the horse, mm -hmm. because it's if you have the hiatal hernia, then you get the GERD. Correct. Not if you have the GERD, then get the hiatal hernia. That's one. And two, you just gave this person an EGD, and the EGD operator did not say they noticed the hiatal hernia. <laughs> okay, so those are two reasons. Yeah, or the test writer didn't include that. Did not include that. So from I don't think it's hiatal hernia. From the bath report. And then you got the stricture. So I actually think right. that the stricture, the esophageal squamous, and the laryngeal cancer are probably statistically slightly more than the adenocarcinoma and the hiatal hernia, which are slightly less. Um, and if I had to choose among all those three things, I think probably, um, and, and the question prompt included that without treatment, what would happen to this person? Um, and I think without treatment, presumably meaning treatment for the GERD, mm -hmm. the most likely thing that would happen to this person is that they would develop a stricture at that at that location. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's right. It. And I think you brought up a good point that uh, with his smoking history and alcohol use, the risk of squamous cell carcinoma might actually be greater than esophageal adenocarcinoma. Hmm. Um, I don't actually know what the data would be on that, but I remember that any type of esophageal cancer is super low um, incidence. Right. So... And in this patient with already some signs of damage in the distal esophagus, I guess a stricture would be the most common. Would be the most common. I think the other thing about squamous cell cancer of the esophagus is you should know uh, if if the prompt of the question includes drinking very hot tea, mm -hmm. that increases the risk of yeah, esophageal I've heard that too. Yeah, I've seen that in some prompts. All right. Well, that's a good question. That's a question about, I think, pretest probabilities. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I like this question. Um, all right. Well, on that positive note, we'll be back for more questions of the week. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Dr. Sven Olson. We're back for question of the week, hematology, oncology, boards edition. Sven, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you for having me back again. It's great to have you. I'm looking at your beautiful office at the beautiful Pacific Northwest fall colors which this year have been better than most. I don't know if you agree. I, I do agree with you. Actually, that's a stunning view of colors outside the window. I have a few theories. We had a, a cooler than average summer, and we had a prolonged fall where the temperatures didn't dip and the wind has not been brisk. And thus, the leaves have had a chance to turn and they've not been blown off the trees. And so that's why we have a really above average fall colors this year. Wow, I just like sprang that on you randomly and you had theories. You had multiple theories. I have multiple theories as to why I'm this surprised. occurred. Yeah, I shouldn't no. be surprised. I've been thinking about these fall colors as I stare out my window <laughs> contemplating my role in this universe. Dr. Olson, you're a bit of a polarizing character here on Plenary Session, I must say. I must say. Uh, I get a lot of emails saying that they really like your questions, but you also generate the most consternation among the listeners. And even your mea culpas seem not to go far enough <laughs> for some, and they just want more. I said that, you know, someday we will, we will revisit these issues. But sometimes you're never going to make everyone happy, so you might have to live with, um, live with having some haters out there, Dr. Olson. Well, I guess uh, I'm new to this whole thing with, uh, I, you know, I told you I just got on Twitter earnestly mm -hmm. about two weeks ago Sphematologist. Mm -hmm. yes and uh it's been eye-opening i am not a twitter user up until recently so I'm, I'm learning all sorts of things about 
social media that I didn't know before. You, you were the first to tweet about a study, and that generated a bit of uh, uptick <laughs> in your use, right? Yes, I'm knowing, I, I, I know the, the rules of the game now. So uh-huh. there was a recent publication about uh, Apixaban and treatment of cancer-associated DVT, and I noticed it was published and promptly tweeted it, and it, man, it got me a lot of followers. That was pretty cool. Well, you know, you shouldn't be surprised. There's one noted Twitter user, and this person's predominant use of Twitter is to tweet articles the moment they are dropped online. And just by <laughs> tweeting them, this person has amassed a large following. But I dare not name he who shall remain nameless. I dare not name. So, Dr. Olson, what question of the week do we have this week in the hematology-oncology space? Okay, I'm going to steer clear of genetic testing Let's do that. for a little bit. Let's do that. I want to steer very clear of it. <laughs> I've had my fill of that. So you are consulting on a 55-year-old woman who presented with painless jaundice. She had a CT scan that showed a 2.5-centimeter mass in the head of the pancreas with 360-degree encasement of the superior mesenteric artery. Uh, endoscopic ultrasound with biopsy confirms an adenocarcinoma of the pancreas. She had an ERCP with placement of a common bile duct stent to relieve biliary obstruction. Scanning shows no evidence of local nodal or distant metastatic disease. Her ECOG performance status is zero and she's feeling well. There are no comorbidities and her bilirubin is now trending to normal. So the question is, which of the following is the best treatment recommendation at this time? A. Capecitabine and radiation therapy. B. Gemcitabine and NAB paclitaxel, C, surgical exploration to attempt resection, or D, surgical referral for a palliative cholidocal jejunostomy. Hmm, interesting. So, this is a case of a 55 year old lady who presented with painless jaundice and was unfortunately found to have pancreatic cancer. Is that right? Correct. And, and you dropped an interesting tidbit in this, which was that the degree to which this cancer encircles a great vessel in this case was a superior mesenteric vein or artery vein artery artery important it's even more it's an important distinction right vein you can you can do a lot of things to get around a vein but if something is 360 degree encircling of the artery it's a dicey proposition at least on the boards now i guess we should draw a distinction here because there's a question that always arises which is what is resectable local regional pancreas cancer versus what is unresectable. And at the end of the day, we as medical oncologists, we don't make the final call. But on the boards, they use a few, I think, rules of thumb. One rule of thumb I see them use on the boards is uh, when the vessel SMA or SMV is encircled. And typically, they use a cutoff of, I believe, on the boards, 180 degrees, or is it 270 degrees? 180 degrees on the boards, if I recall correctly. Well, it's based on always this sort of one table that's in a page of NCCN, and it's replicated elsewhere, but um, it's really lengthy. And I think the longest bit of it is these borderline resectable patients, which honestly, I, I don't make myself remember those. I mostly remember the unresectable parts. And then go from there, because usually the question will be black or white, resectable yes. or not. Right. And in this case, I think by saying 360, they're, they're making it clear that it's absolutely unresectable. Right. They went with the full gamut. So uh, the unresectable cases, as you were saying, for and they separate this based on arterial or venous mm-hmm. vessels. So an artery, either the SMA or celiac artery, anything over 180 degree mm-hmm. uh, contact is unresectable. Mm-hmm. And that's whether it's the head or the body or tail. Mm-hmm. And then for the veins, it's a little different. It's not really the degree of encasement. It's more what they list as unreconstructable SMV or portal vein due to tumor involvement or occlusion. And that can be either 
you know, a thrombus or like, you know, these quote unquote tumor thrombus. Um, and then they have a couple other smaller criteria for venous and that's contact with the most proximal draining jejunal branch into mm-hmm. the SMV. Um, and I think that's it. So mm-hmm. basically for arterial, it's SMA or CA over 180. And for venous, it's anything that's deemed inconstructible or unreconstructable due to occlusion or tumor thrombus. That's good to know. And even that's, that even seems a little, you know, basically up to the surgeon's exactly. interpretation. I mean, and that's what I try to kind of boil down to. In the real world versus the world of the boards, there's this distinction, which is what is the surgeon in front of you willing to do? Mm-hmm. Now, let's, let, me, let me take a little bit of a diet before I come back to the answer to your question. But the first thing I want to say about your question is the first point I want to make is, in my mind, I'm trying to answer, is this somebody whom the boards believes is resectable or unresectable? And I believe the boards believes this patient is unresectable. So that's the first thing. Yeah. Here's my little uh, tangent. Uh, you know, for people in whom pancreas cancer is resectable, we recommend, of course, the Whipple procedure for pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Of course, we do so because we believe it improves outcomes for that patient. But to my knowledge, they've never subjected the Whipple procedure to a randomized control trial assessing whether or not outcomes are improved. And I have long wondered whether or not it would fare that well in a randomized fashion. Of course, it would pay an early penalty of operative mortality, but whether or not it even regains outcomes on the back end is something uh, that I doubt. And uh, and I think it's different than other tumor types because uh, pancreas cancer is just oh so often micrometastatic on presentation, and the Whipple is rarely, uh, rarely a curative treatment. It's most likely mm-hmm. a palliative treatment. But anyway, that's for another day. So back to your question. So the other options were... Uh, Sape cytobine and radiation, um, uh, uh, NAB paclitaxel gem, yep. uh, uh, and then uh, one was some sort of palliative surgery. Yeah, it was a palliative cholidocojejunostomy. Cholidocojejunostomy. And what was the fourth option? That was the fourth option. That was the fourth so option. surgery to, recept, to resect the tumor, surgery to give this palliative procedure to drain the biliary system, and then uh, either cape cytobine and radiation or combo cape, uh, gem side of being nab paclitaxel. Yeah, so I guess I think what the board is trying to get at is the right answer, although this might not be the answer realized in practice, which is that once a patient is deemed unresectable uh, or metastatic pancreas cancer, that patient goes in a bucket where the standard of care treatment is uh, cytotoxic chemotherapy, of which there are two frontline options uh, in the modern age for people with generally good performance status of ECOGS, one or two zero. Uh, that would be the full Furinox strategy, um, which has a lovely New England Journal paper, I think 2011, or the NAB paclitaxel gemcitabine strategy, which is the Von Hoff paper um, a couple years later, I think 2013 or so um, in the New England Journal. So yeah, so I guess uh, it, it would be one of those two strategies. And here I see the second strategy. I think the sapecitabine RT a radio sensitizer given with RT. I think that's trying to tempt you into giving it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe that there is no phase three trial data that supports that strategy. Although I think there'll be some doctors out there in the community who do it. Um, and the palliative surgery, I think, is generally not recommended in pancreas cancer because of um, the, obviously, the recovery time and the speed at which the tumor grows. Uh, it's very likely that you won't derive much of a benefit from any sort of palliative surgery. Right. So... So what is the answer? Is it gemnab paclitaxel? It is, according to this stem. This stem. Okay. Now we'll let, of course, plenary session listeners will be able to write in with their feedback and put you to task if you're wrong. But this is, I think, a reasonable answer. Um, what else do you want to teach about this question? Jeez, I'm sweating now. Um, well, I think that, as you said, there are two sort of most predominantly used frontline regimens. Although I'd say, honestly, in the population I've seen 
you know, I treat a lot of veterans in my in my clinic and my fellowship, and very few of them are of the performance status to even tolerate gem nab paclitaxel or fulfirinox. So, gemcitabine unfortunately is something that we do turn to sometimes, and that is a listed uh, option even on NCCN as a frontline option. Mm-hmm. It's not category one, but the other things that are possible are. Um, uh, capecitabine alone or gemcis actually is on there too and you know they make a distinction there and elsewhere that uh, people that do tend to have now I'm going to delve into genetics one more time BRCA. this is it this German is it BRCA. I swear I'll keep it to like uh, 30 seconds or less people that have BRCA or PALB2 mutations which is a very small subset they are tend to be more platinum sensitive and so they do suggest you use something along the lines of fulfirinox or gemcis which has a platinum agent but anyway um, in this case, I think, you know, what we always talk about in our tumor boards Wait, is... Wait, well, I just want to jump in there. They, they, you know, they can, they can say that all they want, and if they want to be able to convince others to do such a thing, they are so easy, they're free to do a randomized trial in that population, showing a benefit for platinum in that population. They have yet to do so. Uh, meanwhile... I think it comes from also, you know, the same yes. thing with triple negative breast cancers. Right. synthetic lethality and the idea that platinum right. causes Braca, DNA addicts, yeah. and then you have your impaired part, you have your impaired DNA repair pathway, and that mm-hmm. platinum is more likely to work in that path. Oh, yeah. Okay. Biologically uh, plausible. Of course. The road to hell is paved with <laughs> biological plausibility. Every successful and every failed treatment were biologically plausible. But I do think that the other thing that I hope you're not going to say is Olaparib. Are you going to say Olaparib later on? No, I was not even going to touch on that. Yeah, the polo trial. Listeners of this podcast know what I think about the polo trial, which is a clinical trial where you take people who are responding to fulfirinox, and of course you do the most insane thing possible, which is you stop the therapy they're responding to and randomize them to a PARP inhibitor or placebo, and then see what happens uh, with uh, something like a double-digit response rate on the control arm, suggesting that uh, they're continuing to respond to prior active therapy. That is a bad, bad, bad study that you can listen to on this podcast. But all right, so now, okay, you made your... Your call, Oof. your call for uh, for bullet. Gen- I mean, to be honest with you, I guess I would say, and and let me ask you, do you even get genetic testing on your, um, you know, de novo metastatic pancreas cancer patients? Different people will tell you different things, and different societies will tell you different things. So the NCCN will basically say yes, you should do it for everyone, and ASCO has a few more kind of nuanced criteria. Um, so they suggest it more if you have one of the, you know, breast ovarian cancer syndromes in the of family, course. if you have yes, more than three sense. pancreatic cancers in the family and to limit it mostly to those people. But even they have a little caveat, I believe, that says, you know, you can consider testing everyone. So, wow. Yeah, you can consider it. You know, I think that um, the guidelines I go with is the association of submission of bills. The association of submission of bills recommends <laughs> universal Lynch testing, universal bracket testing. And it turns out they recommend universal all testing all the time in everybody. That's the association of bills. Um, but uh, I tease, but these associations have different levels of evidence. Of course, the ASCO uh, clinical evidence guidelines, I believe, I think I talked about on this podcast with Cliff Huddis, they're often different than NCCN because they actually follow evidence and not just what somebody wants to toss in the mix. Okay, right. so back to you. All right, so so you're talking about where you might consider platinum in the front line with uh, gemcis. Yeah, and um, what we always discuss in our tumor boards is do we give them fulfirinox, do we give them uh, gemcitabine, nab, pac- paclitaxel? They're both category one. They're both reasonable options. They both have a survival benefit to gemcitabine alone. Uh, they haven't been compared in a randomized trial yet, but there have been some retrospective and kind of non-randomized cohort studies. And in general, the survival seems to be the same no matter which you start with and how you sequence them. 
with roughly an OS of something around 12 or 13 months. Um, so I think the one big difference is there may be a little bit uh, lower incidence of adverse effects with NAB, paclitaxel, and gemcitabine. Um, and so personally, I tend to favor that one if I have to pick. Um, I think if you have a patient who truly is ECOG zero, 50 years old, very fit, and you're given the choice, then I think a lot of people do lean more in the Fulfirinox direction just because the hazard ratio in Delta between that and Jim was a little bit better in that French study. Um, but, you know, I think the reality is like what you said in the beginning, which is you just don't have a lot of people who are really great candidates for either. Right. I mean, that's the reality of taking care of pancreas cancer in the in the real world, not in the ivory tower referral center, quaternary referral center kind of world where a lot of clinical research is done. In the real world, um, these are both very difficult regimens, and sometimes you're forced to think about GEM alone or even palliative care alone. Mm-hmm. So anyway, okay, so what else um, What else do you think is a, is a teaching point from this case? Well, that might be it, actually. Let's say your patient gets NAB, paclitaxel, GEM, cytobine, and uh, then has progressive disease. Uh, what's your go-to second-line regimen in this space? Um, in that case, I would probably turn to, is it, uh, the interferon, the, not the pegylated interferon. Liposomal. Liposomal interferon based on not the. Not interferon. You're thinking another no, eyewear. Interferon, yeah. Iron Yeah. Uh, based on the, oh my gosh, I can't remember the name of the trial, but you know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking about. I'm going to pull up the name of the trial because I don't remember the name of the trial. Oh, thank God. <laughs> I said pegylated and it was wrong. It turns out it's. Napoli. The efficacy of a liposomal arena taken in combination liposomal. with 5-FU and leucovorin is assessed in the phase 3 Napoli trial with, in which 417 patients with gemcitabine refractory locally advanced or metastatic pancreas cancer were assigned weekly administration of 5-FU and leucovorin for 4 out of every 6 days. The control arm, liposomal arena tecan alone every 3 weeks or liposomal arena tecan prior to 5-FU leucovorin every 2 weeks and median overall survival was 6 months if you got liposomal arena tecan versus 4 months if you didn't. Napoleon. See, I was thinking pegylated interferon because I'm about to go to a benign heme clinic and I'm treating someone with uh, an MPN, so that's my excuse. I see. And Instead of but what pegylated m- interferon, it is liposomal arena tecan. Uh, and wh- and uh, <laughs> what MPN are you giving pegylated interferon for? It's very effective in people who are young and are pregnant and can't have hydroxyurea. Oh, pregnancy. I didn't see that coming. Ooh. I didn't see that. I want, Yeah, I wonder what you're doing. Okay, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, okay, good. So, uh, although, to be honest with you, have you ever prescribed liposomal arena tecan? No. No, yeah, me neither. Not many people get that far very often. Yeah. And at least in my experience. Okay, so so that's it, huh? Any other pearls? That's all the pearls I got. Yeah, I think it's you can't, a, you can't hand out pearls too often. That's be rare. That's true. You got to make people want the pearls. Yes. Well, uh, it's well done. It's a good case. I think you went over the nice criteria for what is resectable pancreas cancer, at least according to the boards. Let's not get into what any surgeon might do out there. I think we made the side note uh, asterisk. Uh, what about Whipple RCT someday? Whipple RCT might, uh, might be a medical reversal. Okay. I'm just willing to, I'm willing to put my bets down now that I think it's going to be quite provocative. You whip, do a Whipple RCT. Uh, number three, uh, that you're really between Fulfirinox or NAB Paclitaxel gem. And I think your fourth point, which is the astute point, which is that really, realistically, there are a lot of people out there who you're probably thinking gem alone. All right, Dr. Olson, thanks for that. Great question. You're welcome. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. 
Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.